Would you turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 10? We're continuing our studies in the book of Hosea. We come to Hosea uh, chapter uh, 10. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. So you go to those big prophets towards the end of the Old Testament and just uh, move through them. Uh, you'll come to Daniel and Hosea's, the first of the minor prophets uh, after uh, Daniel. So Hosea chapter 10, and we'll read from verse 1. Israel is uh, a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants with judgments spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king, I should just say uh, that we're dealing with northern Israel. Ephraim was the dominant tribe in northern Israel, and Samaria was the capital of northern Israel. So when we uh, read about Ephraim, Israel, and Samaria, it's all referring to the same people and the same place. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must ply. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plied iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalom destroyed Beth Arbel in the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus shall it be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. If you have been with us during these studies in Hosea, you will know that the prophet keeps returning to this theme of Israel's spiritual and moral compromise, that Israel was carrying on a prolonged love affair with the false god Baal and neglecting her relationship with her rightful husband, Yahweh. This affected them both morally and spiritually, morally because 
The worship included all kinds of wicked and perverse practices, and spiritually, because the pure, unadulterated worship of Yahweh was diluted and compromised. The moral corruption affected every part of the life of the nation, uh, even in its political and judicial systems. Look at verses 3 and 4. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could a king do for us? They um, just ditched king after king as one conspirator after another hacked his way to the throne. They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants so judgment springs up like poisonous uh, weeds in the furrows of the field. Even in the courts, you couldn't believe a word that people said. They would just uh, speak untruth. They would deny their uh, promises and their, uh, their covenants. Spiritually, look at verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, as do its adulterous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. Bethel was one of the principal shrines of northern Israel. It was the place where Abraham built an altar. It was the place where Jacob met God, and it was the place where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was temporarily located uh, during the days of the judges. But in that place, uh, Israel's first king, Jeroboam I, erected a golden calf. He appointed his own uh, priests, and he introduced uh, uh, all kinds of religious practice, uh, practices. Now, Bethel means the house of God, but the, by the time that Hosea was ministering, so corrupted had the worship become that Hosea calls it caustically not Bethel, the house of God, but rather Beth even the house of wickedness. And there in verse 5, he calls its priests idolatrous priests, a term that is only used of total pagans elsewhere in Scripture. These priests sat very loose to Scripture. To them, worship was an exercise in imagination rather than a surrender to divine revelation. The God who said, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make your, for yourself an idol in the form of anything, was worshipped alongside Baal and by means of a golden calf at Bethel. No wonder Hosea calls it beth Even, the house of wickedness, the house of evil. Now, it would be very wrong to think that Morally and spiritually, Israel had completely abandoned the worship of Yahweh in favor of the worship of this false fertility god, Baal. What they had done as a nation was to incorporate the one religion into the other. So it was a kind of syncretistic mishmash so that uh, all the spiritual and moral compromise of Baal was incorporated into the uh, worship of Jehovah, and Jehovah, or Yahweh, was worshipped uh, in a kind of pretense that everything was okay. Hosea puts his finger on the problem in verse 2. Um, the ESV says their heart is false. The NIV says their heart is deceitful, the authorized version says their heart is divided. The word literally means double-tongued. 
It means to say different things at the same time. It's what the uh, Native Americans said of the white man, uh, of the European settlers, the white man speaks with a forked tongue. We would say speaking out of both sides of our mouths. So in their worship, they were saying one thing to Yahweh, promising to love Him and serve Him. And at the same time, they were saying another thing to Baal, promising to love and serve Him. And I think the authorized version is probably closest to the meaning when it renders it, the heart is divided. As Princess Diana said, it's hard for a marriage to survive when there is a third person in the relationship. That was Israel. There was a third person in the relationship, and Israel couldn't decide who her rightful and legitimate husband was. When she worshipped at Bethel, it was Yahweh's name on her lips at one moment, Baal's on the next, and uh, they were supposed to be worshipping the invisible God who inhabits eternity, but they were worshipping a golden calf that was erected in that place. Remember back in Hosea 7 and verse 8, Hosea described Israel as a flat cake not turned, that she was done on one side and the other. She was cooked on one side but raw on the other. She had this divided heart, these divided loyalties. Now, this morning from the chapter, I want you to notice three things concerning that divided heart. So, first of all, then, the reasons for Israel's divided heart. What factors led Israel into this terrible state of spiritual and moral declension? Well, Hosea draws our attention to three things in the passage. First of all, her material prosperity. Look at verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Those altars are pagan altars, and those pillars are fertility pillars that were dedicated to the worship of Baal. As we noticed in previous studies that although Israel was declining spiritually in the 8th century, on the economic front, she was doing rather better. Financially, she was prospering. Her GDP was increasing. Inflation was declining. The economy was booming. She was the modern China of the ancient world. But as far as Hosea was concerned, this economic prosperity was a major contributing factor to Israel's appalling spiritual condition to her divided heart. The more affluent she became, the more divided she became. The more she prospered um, uh, with, uh, with materially, that prosperity was seen in the erection of pagan altars, and the decoration of these pillars. The NIV says sacred shrines, these fertility pillars. Instead of deepening, of a deepening sense of dependency upon God, her wealth had bred moral and spiritual complacency. And that's so often the case, isn't it? Spirituality and prosperity seem to be inversely proportioned to each other. Jesus warned us when, of that when He said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
It just seems that money and material things get in the way of people's spiritual responsiveness and can divide, if not steal, their hearts from God. It's true of individuals. Like that a rich young man that came to Jesus uh, wanting eternal life but went away sad because he had great wealth. Sometimes true of churches like the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. Jesus says to it, you are rich, you don't need a thing, but you don't realize how poor, pitiful, blind, and naked you are. Materially rich, but spiritually impoverished. And sometimes that happens to whole nations too, like Israel, that the more the fruit increased, the more altars she built to these false gods, and the more uh, of these fertility symbols she erected. Beware of materialism. It can steal our hearts from God. It can dilute our love for God. It can destroy our relationship with God so that like Israel, we end up with a divided heart. And Paul speaks of covetousness in Colossians and Ephesians as idolatry. Beware of money because money can make an idolater out of you. It can... Someone has said it can buy you a bed but not sleep. It can buy you books but not wisdom. It can buy you food but not an appetite, medicine but not health, amusement but not happiness, a crucifix but not a savior, a coffin but not heaven. What does it profit a man, says Jesus, if he gains the whole world, the whole world, and loses his own soul? The reasons for this divided heart, Israel's material prosperity. Secondly, Israel's spiritual obstinacy. Look at verse 9. For from the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel, there they have continued. Or the NIV says, there you have remained. As I mentioned in our, our last study, although Gibeah seems a rather obscure reference to us, it certainly wasn't to the people to whom Hosea preached. Gibeah recalls a sordid incident in the days of the judges that involved homosexual lust, gang rape, and murder. You can read all about it there in Judges chapter 19. A, a traveler uh, is passing through Gibeah. He's offered hospitality by an old man. During the night, a gang of local thugs surround the house and demand that the traveler be sent out so that they can abuse him. Uh, the host, the old man, uh, refuses and sends out his concubine, and they all raped her and left her for dead on his doorstep. The man summoned the, the tribes of Israel to Gibeah to insist that those who were responsible should be punished when the residents of Gibeah refused to hand these thugs over, a war broke out against the men of Gibeah, supported by their fellow tribesmen, the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, uh, so it was Benjamin against the 11 tribes. And thousands died before that rebel city was captured, and the tribe of Benjamin was practically wiped out. And what Hosea is saying is, what was the problem what was the problem with, with Gibeah? And I, I read that story again in Judges 19. And, and it comes down to this stubbornness, stubbornness. 
that the men of Gibeah refused to hand over these offenders. They refused to give in. They continued in their sinful attitude, even though the whole of the rest of the nation was against them. And the people of Gibeah sinned. God punished them. They refused to repent. And the people of God in, in Hosea's day did the very same thing. Look at verse 9 again. They have continued. They have remained. And just as God punished the people of Gibeah, so God would punish Israel and gather nations against them. Look at, look at verse 10. When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Double iniquity. Scholars and commentators differ to what that refers to. Does it refer to the fact that a golden calf was erected at Bethel and there was another golden calf erected at Dan? Some commentators suggest that double iniquity is their spiritual compromise, but also their stubbornness in continuing in it and refusing to repent. And Hosea is saying, learn from Gibeah. That stubbornness led to calamity. It was Hegel, the German philosopher, who wrote, history teaches us that history teaches us nothing. And that was true of Israel. Israel had countless incidents, not least of all this uh, terrible uh, um, massacre at Gibeah, uh, and the terrible events that surrounded, but she refused to learn from her history. She would not change. She would not budge. She just continued on in that sin. Are we so different? Have we not our Gibeaths to remind us of our need to keep short accounts with God? Times we have, when we have sinned, times when God has come, and aggravated that sin, highlighted that sin to our conscience, maybe brought trouble into our lives, and uh, brings us to the place of repentance in the midst of that trouble. But the opportunity to sin comes again, and we say, well, this time is going to be different. He won't punish us this time. He won't pursue us this time. Israel had a divided heart because of her material prosperity, because of her spiritual obstinacy, because of a false sense of security. Look, look at verse 13. You have plied iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. You see, Israel persisted with this spiritual and moral compromise because she didn't feel threatened in any way. She, she felt secure. Sure, Gibeah and all that had uh, transpired there stood as a, a reminder that God does punish sin, but when Israel looked to her army, armies and to her own uh, political ingenuity, she felt safe. She didn't feel vulnerable. She had a false sense of security. As Assyria flexed its muscles and began to broaden its political horizons, you would have thought perhaps that Israel might be driven back to God with a sense of dependence upon God, but not a bit of it. She looked at her soldiers, and she looked at her political alliances, and she placed her confidence in them. And that sense of 
false security contributed to her spiritual condition, to her divided heart. And that's so true of us, isn't it? When things are going well and life seems secure, that uh, seems secure, that's the time that we spiritually slip or we spiritually sleep. We don't feel our need of God. Our sense of dependence of God is gone. And it's only when we face hardships and difficulties that we're driven back to seek God, that He puts us on our backs that we might look up. Let me ask you then this morning, have you a divided heart? What has led you into that position of spiritual and moral compromise, material prosperity, spiritual obstinacy, or a false sense of security? The second thing I want you to notice is the danger of a divided heart. Although Israel felt secure, she was far from secure. In fact, just in a few years, the mighty nation of Assyria would deliver a blow so severe that Israel would not recover. And in this chapter, Hosea reminds Israel not only of God's punishment inflicted upon the people of Gibeah, but warns them of an, a greater, an even greater punishment that will be unleashed on them. The chapter is peppered with references to Israel's uh, prophesied um, destruction. Look at verse 7. Um, Samaria's king, we're told, shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. You ever played poo sticks from Winnie the Pooh? You know, where you go to a bridge over a river, you throw the sticks in, and you watch the sticks being carried away, and you see whose stick goes the furthest. We played that with the boys. It was riveting. But, uh, but anyway, uh, they were so amused when their mommy wanted to play poo sticks. But carried away, carried away on the waters. Well, that's the kings of Israel. They're going to be carried away on the rivers. Uh, look at the, the religious life of the nation. Look at, at, at verse uh, 6. The thing itself, that's the golden calf, shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Look at verse 8. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up. So all these, these uh, um, altars that were erected during this time of prosperity, thistles grow over them. Weeds grow over them. They're rendered useless. And then look at the second half of uh, verse 8. Uh, they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Assyria was particularly ruthless in the judgment uh, that she exacted on the nations that she conquered. You know, we have archaeological evidence, um, carvings and stone of, of uh, nations being led away with hooks in their noses and brought before the king of, of, the Assyria, of Assyria who would yank the chain and break that little bit of flesh on the nose and then put them to death. Cruel, cruel. Look at verses... 14 and 15. Therefore, the children of war shall rise among your people, and all fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalom destroyed Beth Arbel in the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces and their children with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Isn't that a frightening picture? 
Now, this incident at Beth Arbel we know nothing about, but it, it seems it was a, something that happened in recent history in which this man, Shalom, perhaps the king of Moab, ransacked Beth Arbel in a particularly bloody way. Children and their mothers were massacred alongside their husbands. Hosea says that event is going to be like a teddy bear's picnic in comparison to what's going to happen to you, Israel. That's the danger of a divided heart. It provokes the judgment of God. God is a God of extraordinary patience, but He's not a God of infinite patience. His patience can run out. His patience can be exhausted. His patience can end. And God will not indefinitely put up with moral and spiritual compromise with a divided heart. We have a saying, beware of the wrath of a patient man. Uh, Hosea says, beware of the wrath of a patient God. God will not put up with spiritual duplicity indefinitely. There is an invisible line that marks the boundary between God's patience and God's wrath. And when you cross that line, His wrath will fall. And could it be that your spiritual and moral compromise and intransigence and duplicity has provoked the wrath of God and that you've actually crossed that line? Perhaps there are non-Christians here and you have a divided heart. You have a, you have a conscience that's been conditioned by the Word of God. You've been brought up in a, a, a Christian home. You've been brought up in a Christian church. You know right from wrong. You know what the Bible teaches. You know that there is a God, that He sent His Son into the world, but you're still not saved. And there's this uh, part of you that holds you back, and yet you have this love for the world, this attraction to this world, this desire for the world. And God has warned you again and again. He has pleaded with you. Has times perhaps He sent difficulty into your life to, to make you and sit up and take notice and examine your life in the light of eternity. But you're still not saved. Beware of the wrath of a patient God. The cry of verse 8, when the people cry to the mountains to cover us and the hills to fall on them, is picked up twice in the New Testament, once in Matthew's gospel where it refers to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and once in Revelation where it refers to the final judgment, Revelation 6. Let me read these words to you. The, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Can you imagine a lamb being angry, a, a lamb being furious? You remember uh, Dennis Healy said of Jeffrey High in the House of Commons that when he spoke and criticized, it was being like savage like a sheep, he said, because lambs are meek 
uh, creatures and the Lamb of God is the one who takes the sin of the world away, that He's the one that's full of grace and mercy and compassion. He's a God of extraordinary patience, not wanting any to perish. But here is the Lamb angry and the Lamb furious because His patience has run out run out, and His judgment falls. On that great and terrible day of the Lord, unbelievers will wish that volcanoes would erupt and mountains would fall on them to cover them and preserve them from the wrath of the Lamb. You're trying to frighten us into becoming Christians. Yes, I am. See, your problem is that you have no fear of God. You don't realize that God is a fearful God, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the uh, living God. The Bible is a book for realists. It knows it's not simply true that they all lived happily ever after. Judgment is a reality. And just like that film that we're watching or that book that we're reading, the time will come when the last line will be spoken and the page will turn and judgment will come. God warns us all this morning, just as He warned the Israelites, that judgment will come and we ignore those warnings at our pearl. The reason for a divided heart, the danger uh, of a divided heart. And then uh, quickly, verse 12, uh, the remedy for a divided heart. Do you see that in verse 12? So for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness uh, on you. Here was Israel in great danger. Judgment had been promised. Judgment had been threatened. Judgment had been prophesied. But still Hosea holds out hope. And he says, it is time to seek the Lord. That spiritual duplicity, that divided heart has gone on long enough, and it's time, says Hosea, to seek the Lord, that there's still hope amidst all these terrifying pronouncements of judgment, the gospel and the mercy of God is still being held out, that there's still hope. In verse 12, Hosea tells us that certain things need to happen uh, if we are to seek the Lord. That there's, there's repentance. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground. You want to know this mercy, the authorized version says, this steadfast love, this hesed love of the Lord. You've, you've got to repent. You've got to uh, break up your hard heart. Your heart is like an unattended garden. The weeds have taken uh, roots. You need to pull out those weeds. You need to sow righteousness. You need to break up uh, your fallow ground. You, you need to repent. You need to face up to the problem of sin. You need to face up to the problem of a divided heart and deal with the things that took you from God or prevent you from coming to God. And you need to keep going it says, for it is time to seek the Lord. And uh, the, most other versions say, Un, 
till he comes and rains righteousness on you. That, that you, you don't give up, you don't give in, that, that He becomes your priority, that you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, that all these things become the number one thing in your life, that you've got to get right with God, you've got to sort out your relationship with God. If you're a believer, you have to lay aside the divided heart, and if you are a, a, an unbeliever, that you need to give your heart to God, and, and you, you, you don't give in, you keep seeking Him. You keep breaking up the fallow ground until you know His love shed abroad in your heart. And then the promise is, until He comes and reigns righteousness on you, that uh, this disobedient people, this people with a divided heart, that He promises that if they, if they repent, if they face up to the problem of sin, if they persevere in seeking Him, that He will come and open the clouds of heaven and rain righteousness on them, that He will come and, and take away their sin and give them a righteousness that makes them acceptable to God, that He will rain righteousness, a, a righteousness that is from above, a righteousness that is outside uh, themselves, that He will rain that righteousness on them. So I'm asking you this morning, have you a divided heart? Has your loyalty and love to the Lord Jesus slipped? It's time. It's time. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to break up the fallow ground. It's, it's time to deal with the sin that has separated you from God and stolen your heart from God. And you must never give in until you know that you're still, that you're back in a right relationship with God and take the, those things that have taken you from Him, deal with them and seek Him until He rains righteousness on you. And um, if you're not a Christian, I, I sometimes, you know, in the church, and I've said this before, non-Christians who sit under the preaching of the Word week by week, I want to come and I want to shake you. And I want to say, don't you realize the danger that you're in? Uh, Jesus said that he who does not believe is condemned already, that you're living under the condemnation of God and the judgment of God. And who knows when his patience is going to run out and that judgment may fall. You need to seek Christ. You need to believe in Christ. You need to come in Christ. You need to trust in Christ. You need to face up to the problems of sin deal with the sin in your life. That's repentance, and you need to believe in Jesus exclusively as the grounds of your acceptance before God. And then He'll come. He'll come and rain righteousness on you. Do you ever feel guilty? Do you ever feel guilty? Do your sins trouble you? Do your sins upset you? Do your divided loyalties make you tremble in the presence of the living God. It's time. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to put things right. It's time to come to Him.